Morning, Central Bible Church. Lovely to see you. Um, I'm sure like me, as you walk into this beautiful lighted space that's decorated so wonderfully for the holidays, um, it's nice to be here with people celebrating the joy and nobody's trying to sell you something. So that's always good. Um, this morning I just have a few announcements for you. Uh, the first is our ladies' Christmas tea is this coming Saturday. Very exciting. Um, it's 1.30 to 3.30 Saturday here in Mitchell Hall, and it's a potluck-style event, so we ask that you bring some treats. Good morning, everybody. Merry Christmas. It's a good season, isn't it? It's good to be here with you. Yeah, my name is Ben. I'm one of the pastors on staff, and so if you're here visiting today, welcome, a warm-hearted welcome from everybody here. What a season. Christmas time, the Advent season. I would like to start out this morning by giving you two adjectives. I like words. So I want to do two adjectives. You get to pick one. I'm going to ask you a question, and then you get to answer it with one of two words. So here's the question. How does Christmas make you feel? Okay. How does it make you feel? Your two options, multiple choice, A and B. Option A is comfortable. Option B is terrified. Okay? I think most of us probably go with option A. I don't generally come into the Christmas season uh, with a whole lot of fear in my heart. <laughs> it's not a real terrifying kind of moment. It's a very comfortable uh, time of year. Of course it is. It's normal. Christmas is normal to us. It's traditional. It happens on the same day every year. It's familiar. Almost everything we do is just what we do because it's Christmas time. So we wrap presents and bake cookies, watch Elf a couple times. It's just, that's what we do. But you and I are 2017ers, and we're, most of us are not Jewish. We have to strain our brains significantly to imagine a day when Christmas was brand new, when the Advent was unknown. There were no such festivities that celebrated this deal. You've got to try to sit in that spot where God himself is incarnating into the world. It's pretty profound. This morning I want to open this chapter in the New Testament that takes us to a familiar scene where this crew of shepherds, I think they're almost definitely Jewish guys, learn something very new. It's shockingly new. It absolutely upends everything that they had thought prior to that moment. Everything that happens to them is most certainly not whatever happens to anyone. This doesn't happen to people. This isn't something that's real. <laughs> What's going on in their moment? It just doesn't happen to people. It's most certainly not what God does. So here they are, believers in God, watching God do something that God doesn't do. What do they do in that moment? For us, it's just Christmas. We, we come to it, we sing the songs, we go through the motions, it's very comfortable and familiar. For them, we read different adjectives in terms of how they react. God does do this, and it does happen to them. God overturns their impressions. He flips over their assumptions. He challenges them. And that's kind of the theme of these four Advent sermons that we're doing here. That theme of flipping over, upending, reversing the norms that we've grown so accustomed to. Last week, we went at that, that idea of limited resources and realized that the Advent, the incarnation of God's Son, reminds us that we have a God of abundance and we don't live in a world characterized by scarcity. We live in a world created by a God who breathes things into existence. <laughs> so that challenged us. Today, it's a different upending, and we're looking at certainty, and we're looking at trust. The advent of Christ flips these shepherds upside down, turning their sense of certainty on its head. They're driven to trust God himself rather than trusting in their own correct beliefs. They're trusting God himself more than trusting what they believe about him. 
Nothing bolsters our sense of self-worth more than thinking we are correct. It's what we're grown up with. We've been brought up in a way that, that ties right thinking and being okay with God together. You know what I'm talking about. If you're not okay with God, if you have a problem with God, if you have a doubt, if you have something you're wrestling with, that's because you're not thinking correctly. Right thinking, knowing the truth, is what makes you okay with God. That's how we've all been raised. We tie those together so tightly that when we sense we're wrong about something or we don't understand something, then we feel, we've been made to feel, that we don't have a strong enough faith. Our thinking about God needs to be correct in order for us to have that joy, that meaningful, that purposeful, that healing kind of faith. And if we don't have, if we have a confusion or a doubt, we think that our faith can't be joyful or it's not even real. From your earliest days of conscious existence, you have been told that being correct is what makes you joyful and safe productive, worthwhile. Avoid the embarrassment of being wrong at all costs. I teach classes in a couple different schools, right next door at Multnomah and one out at the coast at Cola Bible College. I've watched a trend for the past eight years. I haven't been teaching that long, but every year the students are less and less prone to answer questions out loud. Literally, I can have, in my most recent class that I taught next door here, I had a class of about nine people, and I asked them to tell me what a verse in the book of Ruth said. What does it say in verse five? Nobody would answer. It's literally just asking them to read the sentence. Don't want to get it wrong. I don't want to say something wrong. I don't want to be embarrassed. Why? Because being correct is what matters. It's how we're trained. All of our education is geared toward getting the answer right. You're praised if you get the answer right, not if you ask a great question. You get a good grade if you get the correct answer, not if you have a good question. That's how it's built. Familiarity, correctness, certainty. These are a few of my favorite things. <laughs> but Christmas time does teach us something new about doubt. It teaches us something new about certainty and about trust. In the end, there is no story ever told, I believe, that makes less sense than the Christmas story. It is the most factually unprovable, unrealistic, and unlikely story ever told. I mean, it is just downright stupid. When you put the snickerdoodles and the stocking stuffers down for a second and really ask some good questions about Advent, this thing gets downright terrifying. Your mind will spin out. Your heart will feel something new, something that makes honest and faithful people doubt that it actually happened. You realize that what you are beholding here is not just a cute and cuddly kid's story about a sweet widow bebe who sleeps in a manger. It's not that. The story is absolutely insane. It is crazy. A young woman comes to the scene claiming to have never had sex and then says, and I'm pregnant. Okay. All right. And then she says, by the way, I'm pregnant with God. Oh. Okay. Yeah, ooh, he kicked a little. Do you want to touch my belly? No thanks. I'm good. Yeah, God's in my womb kicking. Nobody, I mean nobody thought that God was going to literally, truly become a real flesh and blood human being. That's just not going to happen. The deity, the divine, doesn't enter into this broken state. This is one of the capstone, pinnacle uniquenesses of the Christian faith. The deity, the creator, enters his creation. It just doesn't make sense. 
So let's go back to Luke 2 and see this familiar scene unfold, perhaps in a new way. First of all, in the previous scenes that lead up to this moment, Luke has illustrated in, in his version of the gospel, uh, he's told us that already in, in Luke chapter 1, leading up to this moment, he said something big, big, big is on the way. Something really, really important is coming. For hundreds, even thousands of years, these people have been waiting for the rescue agent, for the Messiah to enter, to show up. Luke is coming to the table in the opening verses of his gospel saying, that's happening right now, okay? But we're already kind of reeling because this angel has shown up and said something very unbiblical and doctrinally inaccurate. This angel shows up and he tells Mary that she would be the mother of God. That she would literally give birth to the Son of God and this is so wrong and so theologically inaccurate that the Bible records her as being utterly terrified. You see, if she was expecting anything remotely close to that, she would say, oh, cool, all right, good, about time. Instead, she's terrified. I imagine, <laughs> yeah, that's just at the news. I think that the angelic glowing being in her room also created a little bit of terror, you know. This is a really interesting scene. But all of it together was simply not possible according to the word of God. This wasn't what people were expecting in the way that they had read and interpreted and come to correct beliefs on the Old Testament scriptures. This was blowing that up. Mary, a devoted woman of God who knew her Bible and she knew what she believed. Isn't that the greatest goal? Know your Bible, know what you believe equals faith. She knew what she believed, which according to most of us means she had the truest faith. The guy who says, man, you know, I'm really struggling with some doubts and I'm really struggling with some confusion that has remained unresolved for a very long time. That man, we say, has a weak faith. He needs to just believe and he needs to stop doubting and questioning. Those are the opposite. But the guy who says, man, for so long I used to waffle back and forth in my doubt. I used to, used to really struggle with these different questions about creation and how old the earth is and whether God was good and I had all the, but now those are all settled. I've got it dialed. I'm good. No more questions. We say that that guy's got a strong faith. What a strong faith that person has. Well, Mary hears this news and, and is terrified. She doesn't get what God is saying to her. It doesn't compute to her at all. In Luke 1, verse 30, she's so scared, the angel says to her, don't be afraid, Mary. He knows she's shaking, trembling. This is confusing. I doubt this is real. What's going on? Has she lost her faith in that moment? No, the angel says, don't be afraid, between the lines, because I can sense you really are right now. Mary, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you should call him Yeshua, the Savior, Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants, and his kingdom will never end. Mary is very clearly hearing an angel say, you're going to bear God's son in your womb and he will live forever and reign in, Davidic's, in David's line in an eternal kingdom. He's saying you're going to be giving birth to God. The only thing Mary knows for sure in this situation is that the whole thing is unsure. <laughs> That's the one thing she can hang on to. This is crazy. And then the next scene shows two more things that are absolutely, most certainly, never supposed to happen. Luke 2, verse 8 through 12. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping their watch over the flocks by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. 
I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Christos, the Messiah that you've been waiting for. He is the Messiah, the Lord, Adonai. He will be assigned to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. This will be assigned to you. Well, there's two things here that aren't supposed to happen. The first one is related just to the shepherds themselves. And the fact that the angel chooses these low-life shepherds to be the bearers of the breaking news. We read the word shepherd and you and I kind of think of a Christmas pageant, something cute, maybe like Wendell Berry, a sort of back-to-your-roots agrarian lifestyle, walking around in green pastures with little sheepies. It's cool. I would love to meet a shepherd. I, think, I would respect a shepherd. I would say, wow, how do you do this? That's awesome. Not in this day. Not in their day. Shepherds were lowlifes. They were stinky. The really good, godly people who really were following the laws of God, they didn't like shepherds at all. Shepherds often couldn't follow the kind of religious standards that we love to foist upon one another. They couldn't hold to all of the ritual cleansings and washings and so forth. They were kind of governed by their sheep. They had an obligation daily to sheep herding that they couldn't really let go of. That was seen as a sign of weakness. They're being controlled by something else. So shepherds are pretty low-class citizens in this culture. They didn't do what they were supposed to do. They couldn't observe everything they were supposed to observe. They were hated by some. I think those were your particular uh, elitist types, really looked down on them. But in general, they were just kind of losers. If a shepherd comes up to you to talk, you're kind of getting nervous as he approaches, kind of like, uh, <laughs> okay, I see this dude coming up to me. I don't know what he wants. What does this kind of person have to do with somebody like me? That's just how you kind of feel toward a shepherd. So what does God do? He flips that whole notion right on its head. And he meets the shepherds first. I mean, Mary is probably the first one he met. But he first breaks the news to these shepherds who don't really matter to anybody. He says, yep, you're going to be the ones who bear this news. I think that's a crazy picture. If you had grown up in the community of God's people, you just know. You know how life works. You know for certain that God shows up to pastors and scholars, not dirty, uneducated nobodies. That's who God speaks to the good people, not to people who have average jobs just doing average low stuff. Our hierarchies that we build are so messed up. We believe Billy Graham when he says, God told me something. But when the dirty homeless guy says that God told him something, we just chuckle and move on. <laughs> oh, yeah, okay, buddy. Our world has trained us to value each other in deeply unchristian, unhealthy, and deathly ways. God wants to teach us that. The Christmas story flips over our structures of value. God comes to a young, poor virgin named Mary and says, you're going to bear God himself in your womb. He comes to a group of dirty, low-life shepherds out in a know-nothing field and says, you're going to break the news to planet Earth. So that's the first thing that's most certainly not supposed to happen. The second thing that is most certainly inaccurate is seen through the shepherds' reaction to this news. They know that these angels are just wrong in so many ways. Now, I assume that these shepherds are Jewish. I think that we can. These fields outside, Bethlehem is just a little bit south of Jerusalem. And in the Jerusalem temple cult, you have to, you're sacrificing a lamb on the front and back end of every day. So you've got to have a lot of supply of lambs, okay? And these were probably the fields and the flocks that were supplying the temple, very close to the Temple Mount. So it's very likely that these guys were Jewish. The story just reads that way. And these Jewish guys, I think, are having an uh-oh moment. 
Their faith is what it is. They know what they know. They've seen and heard the scriptures. They grew up going to synagogue every week. They know the Torah. They know Yahweh. They know how he rolls. And then, boom, uh-oh, all of my faith is shaken in this moment. All of what I had held to be perfectly and provably true up till now is shaken. I'd ask you, have you ever had your faith shaken? I know I have. And still do, often. You ever have what you hold to believe most dearly shaken where you say to yourself, man, I don't know if I can keep believing that. I don't know if that makes sense. Have you ever believed in something so surely, so certainly, only to later in life wonder, man, was that actually true? I'll give you a couple examples here as a side note. Most of us, most of us, I think, likely all of us have been taught that the earth is very, very young, just about 6,000 years old. We're taught this in Sunday school. We have been repeating that over and over and over for decades, for centuries. We've believed that it's a relatively young earth. And then some of us go to college and you sit in your first biology or some kind of science class and boom, you're like, whoa, you're faced with these giant textbooks with tons of evidence that talk about a very, very old earth. And, and if you're listening to these people, some of them, many of them are faithful, loving Christian scientists. You sit in that spot and you say, wait a minute, this is not what I've learned. This is shaking me. This is weird. I don't get it. You have this uh-oh moment. Are my beliefs actually correct? And because we have learned that faith equals correct beliefs that you never waver on, and we start to feel really conflicted. Oh man, I do love and I do trust God, but I have this belief about the earth and how it has formed in time that's changing because of new things I'm learning. Does that actually mean I don't trust God? Or I don't trust the Bible? Does that, is that where I'm now? Have I, am I losing my faith? Many people have been made to think that. Then you might leave that state school and go to a conservative Bible college in the Pacific Northwest where faithful Christian professors teach you that Christianity and evolution are not necessarily incompatible. You say, what? I'm paying to go to school to listen to a Christian professor at a conservative Bible college tell me that they could actually be compatible? Your faith is shaken. I can't believe that. And then you find out many of your professors hold to a very old earth view. And you say, well, how, what? No. And then you're, you're faced with this dilemma. The dilemma I was faced with was now I have a choice. I either drop the faith and join these faceless fools, <laughs> or, or I try to write my own version of Christianity and don't really care about the Bible anymore. Boy, that shakes up our certainty. And then what happens next? Well, we fight. I'm certain. No, I'm certain. No, I'm certain. No, I'm certain. I'm more certain than you. I'm calmer than you. We cannot handle the feeling of being uncertain. We've attached our sense of joy and meaning or self-worth to the impression that we're correct. If I stand in a place of incorrectness, I, don't, I can't be happy. I can't feel worthy. I feel like a loser. So we defend ourselves, and then we call it defending the faith. You think about those three words in a row. Ask yourself if there's a little bit of an irony there. I'm going to defend the faith, which is something we walk by, which is different than walking by sight. Hmm. Sometimes a big uh-oh moment comes to us through the loss of a family member or a friend. One of my close family members, I worked with him for a long time. He once considered himself a believer in God, a God who is most certainly loving and kind and just. But when his best friend falls ill at a very young age and suddenly dies, the sheer shock and the pain result in a very big uh-oh moment. His faith is shaken. I thought God was just. I thought that God cared for people. Why did my friend deserve this? 
this isn't fair. This isn't, this isn't the world that a loving God would have made. Of course, I think like those of us who grew up within some kind of Protestant evangelicalism, he heard his teachers saying, just believe. All right, so he's coming to the table with an uh-oh. I don't know if God is actually leg- legitimately good. Just believe he's good. Yeah, but I'm really struggling. No, 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 you're, you're, you're losing your faith. Just believe he's good. But I'm really, I don't know if I can. How would he, and you see what happens here. Where, where the lack of certainty makes us feel uneasy and we want to get right back to that certain place and we want others to be there as well. This family member of mine was never allowed a space to deliberate and to dialogue with God like we see it happening in the Bible often. We don't even read the passages often where men and women are coming to the table and questioning God, questioning his goodness, challenging his decision-making. You read Psalm 88 and 89 sometime. You read in there a man who is absolutely bringing an indictment against God. You promised that this would be the case with David's throne, and it clearly is not. What gives, God? You read Jeremiah, you read the prophets, you read Habakkuk. So many people say to God, I doubt you. I don't think your promises are real. I don't believe you're actually with us. How long are you going to stay away from us? The Bible itself gives us license to doubt and wrestle and wonder and question. But so often we say those are not faith. They're the opposite. This family member of mine not having a space to to actually wrestle through the hardest questions of life was made to believe that he had just lost his faith because he had a question. And since he couldn't have faith in the one true God, he switched it out for a different God called Cheap Vodka. And he's been worshiping him ever since. Have you ever experienced an uh-oh moment? Oftentimes they're small things. They could be a line from a movie, an experience that you have or a question you just never could have, you never could shake since you were a kid. You raised your kids in the ways of God. They're doing everything as, you did everything as correctly as you possibly could. You taught them the Bible. You took them to Awanas. You did everything. And then they walk away. And you have this uh-oh moment. You say, what gives? I thought if I trained them up in the ways of the Lord, their way would go well for them. Was God lying to me when he wrote that in the Bible? I don't understand this. Is he punishing me? I better not tell anybody that I wonder that, though, because then they might think that I doubt, and then they'll say I don't have faith. Well, I think that these shepherds in Luke chapter 2 are having a major uh uh-oh moment. First of all, God was not supposed to show up to lowlifes like them at all, and especially not to have this kind of breaking news be entrusted to them. And the second uh uh-oh moment comes in the angel's report itself. The shepherds know for certain that God does not show up in the skies with hosts of angels to sing worship songs that stretch from east to west across the entire horizon. You know, it doesn't happen. Never has before. We've got no record of that kind of thing happening. This would be major breaking pattern from the way that God rolls. We know about the mysterious revelations God has given through great people like Moses and the burning bush or other angelic beings that do show up. Uh, so, so there's some semblance of that, but not like this. This is not how angels work. It's just flat out unbiblical. There's nowhere in the Bible that talks about angels showing up like this. That's what you'd be thinking if you were, I mean, we don't know what they're really thinking, but they're, they're terrified for a reason, and it's not because they understand what's going on, okay? In all honesty, I think, We won't ever know exactly what they were thinking. But we do know that it's way outside of what they believed to be true. Nobody's shocked when it rains in Portland. (laughs) You're not like, whoa, what's going on? Nobody's shocked when Christmas comes on December 25th. You don't get shocked when something happens that you understand. 
Go to verse 9, Luke 2. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. The first Christmas was terrifying to Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and more. And as if the surprise of the skies was not enough, think about the ridiculousness of the instructions that they received. Angel says, in the town of David, you're like, okay, Messiah, town of David, that's, we're good. So far, we're good. The first clause that fits with my certainty structure. And then in the town of David, a Savior, the Messiah, has been born. <laughs> say what, born? Born like human baby, born like with amniotic fluid and blood and all of that, and, and, and then what now? Born in a manger, like where animals eat slop. That sounds more like Templeton the Rat than it does uh, the savior of the world in a, in a slop trough. Come on. It's an unbelievable statement that these angels are making to them. And you're going to find them there, they say, wrapped in swaddling claws. Swaddling. I don't think that's how you pronounce it, but that's pretty funny. Swaddling cloths. Sorry, swaddling cloths, lying in a manger, lying in the place where the animals eat. I think you could probably imagine the shepherds murmuring as they're walking into town, thinking about this unexpected and very non-traditional news. They're probably doubting what the angels said. They're probably still governed by fear. Man, I don't know about this whole baby in a manger thing. And then, bam, verse 13 hits us like a freight train. You imagine they're just freaking out, but then... Verse 13, suddenly a great company, already it's been pretty intense, but here we are, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. At this point, your knees are knocking together. Now we just need to sit down. This is just too much. A great company of the heavenly hosts appears now with the angel. Right here, if we're the shepherds, we have a very significant decision to make. Am I going to fall on my knees, oh, hear the angel voices, and follow this bold new teaching, this radical, liberal, strange way of believing and trusting God? Or am I going to stick with what I already know to be biblically true and provable? Will they put their trust in the correctness of what they already believe? Will they hold true to a faith that will not be swayed by the contradiction of this insane truth? Will they stick to the Bible and stay faithful to their official and agreed upon interpretations of the sacred text? They're not terrified because this is what the Bible taught them was going to happen. They're terrified because this is way outside of anything they had ever thought or ever expected. They must choose between what they are certain about, what they are sure is correct, and what God is literally doing in front of them. What is God literally doing in front of your eyes, in your world, in your home, in your church, in your neighborhood, in your workplace, that you see and you balk at because it doesn't fit with your certainty structure. Sometimes we believe in the Father, Son, and the Holy Bible because we don't want to believe in the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit's not, it's just not, he's not correct enough. Willy-nilly, operated in ways we don't expect. We don't like it. We, we, we don't like surprise. We want it to be comfortable. Well, these guys choose trust over certainty. They're filled with wonder, no doubt. They're filled with doubts. They're uncertain about all of this. Nevertheless, they choose to trust in this new way. Verse 15, the angels had left them and gone into heaven, and the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who's lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what they had been told about this child 
And all who heard it were thamadzoed. They were amazed. The same word that we hear when people see Jesus' miracles, they're thamadzoed. They're so just blown away. People were amazed. And that's not always a positive statement. <laughs> you could be amazed and angry and amazed and stoked, you know. I bet they had a bit of a mixed bag. I think if this were you and me, we would have said, man, let's go down and see if this is really what happened. I mean, the glowing angels in the sky said so, but we've got to see it for ourselves. Let's, let's wait until we have certainty before we act. But they just say, let's go see this thing that has happened. They trust that the angels' voices have spoken accurately. Are they certain? Of course not. They want to go see. They don't tell people until after they've seen. They're not certain that it's true, but they trust that it's true, and that trust causes them to go down to the city of David. When they see the baby Jesus, they start telling everybody. Everybody's totally taken aback. All the other people, too, Luke is showing us, were not expecting this. All of the other people were not amazed and surprised and shocked because this was what they had been expecting. This was way outside of that. It's way outside of what they expected God's will to be. Oh, that's interesting. Okay, I've tried to make a small case here that says the shepherds operated far more according to trust than they did according to the correctness of their already established interpretations of Scripture or their beliefs. And I, and I think some of you might be saying, is this really the main point of that passage, Ben? And then I would say, no, it's probably not. It's in there. I think there's probably a bigger point here. But for the theme of this series and looking at how Advent overturns, I think this is a really good picture of a much greater reality that's been happening in Old and New Testament. It's, it's something we see as the way God acts. So in that sense, I, I think it's a really good picture of this greater reality. I've chosen to focus on that then. To this day, we cannot understand the Incarnation. Anybody who thinks that they just get it? Oh yeah, Son of God became man, no problem, I got it. Man, you're just, you're lying to yourself. That's the greatest, most profound mystery in human history. It's unbelievable. It is such a mysterious thing that it is worth doubting and questioning and thinking about and inquiring into. Jesus says when you're doing that, you are seeking him. And when you're seeking Jesus, you'll find him. He promises that. I think that the whole notion of Advent in our mind, this terrifying thing that we celebrate in Christmas, is one of the many examples that show how the Bible never considers doubt to be the opposite of faith. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. The coming of Christ, his incarnation as a human being, it's an overturning of all that God's people knew to be absolutely and unquestionably true. And guess what? A great many people still today are holding fast to that. They're holding fast to that kind of faith, if you still want to call it that. We know what's true and we do not waver. We know this is not the Messiah based on what the scriptures teach. They're certain. They're trusting in their own correctness. We're not going to cave to this cultural Christmas pressure and let it distort what the Old Testament says about the Messiah because that's where it's correct. And this the way that Jesus comes into the world, what he teaches, the way he goes out, all of that stuff is outside of what we know. We're not going to cave. Holding fast to our certainty is the expression of faith. This very common thought in our day. For this group of folks, the Advent has not overturned anything. It has not overturned their certainty and taught them to trust instead. I want to suggest to you that true faith 
and certainty about our correct thinking often end up being the same to us, but they are not the same. From a very young age, we go to Sunday school and we're taught how to be right about the Bible. We're taught to be able to defend the Bible, to know why you are right and other people are wrong. This sets us up for failure. It sets us up for dividing with one another. It sends us up for arrogance and judgmentalism. We stop seeking because why would we need to seek Jesus? I already know him completely. I'm already certain about everything. Jesus suggests to me in the New Testament that seeking him is going to be something that goes on for hundreds of thousands of trillions of years. In, in what possible world do 38-year-olds like me or 50-year-olds or 85-year-olds come to the table and say, yeah, I've got this? I think we will still be learning the depths of God's character when we're in year 50 trillion will still be made to wonder about his glory and complexity and beauty. And yet, because that is so daunting to us, and because it's outside of our sureness, we don't like it. So we just go to simple facts. We can just repeat over and over. He's good, he's good, he's just, he's good, he's good. Don't ask, don't think, don't doubt. That's not the Christian way of seeking. An Advent, Christmas season, each year can be a reminder to us about how much God wants us to pursue deep, intimate knowledge of him to love your God with all your mind as well. Sometimes we keep the creator captive to what we are able to comprehend. That's from a guy named Peter Enns. He says, we keep the creator captive to what we are able to comprehend. Just think about the risk that God has taken when he breaks into the world that he made. He breaks the mold for all human religion when the divine incarnates. And when he does this, if you think about this, he does this and by doing so he says, all y'all are going to have a say in how the world sees me. That's a risky venture. <laughs> the Bible's written by people. Yes, God inspired these people, but they're people. They're not little image writer prose that God hits print on and then they just script it out on a piece of papyrus. It's real people. God has trusted that he will not just drop down a golden book from the clouds and now we know. Instead, he incarnates, becomes flesh, and says, you guys are going to have to tell the story about me. We say, well, geez, <laughs> aren't we going to mess stuff up? God says, I'm going to help you. But he takes a huge risk. And, it, and it's not, if, if he wanted us to be just rock solid, here's the 10 main points, don't worry about anything else, I think he would have done that. The way he enters in to show us who he is reveals a desire on his behalf that we would be constantly asking, wondering, seeking, not teaching our children just to memorize the right words and numbers, and then say, good, I got the correct beliefs into them. No, teaching them to ask questions, to wonder, to see doubt as the beginning point of an inquiry. Now, when doubt becomes your identity, you're in all heaps of trouble. That's a pretty common Portland mindset. But if you're doubt, that's where you just say, you could never prove anything to me because I'm so smart. I'm like a smartphone. I'm smart. But if you, if you let doubt always lead you down a path of wondering and questioning, I mean, every major discovery human beings have ever made started with a doubt. God comes and he lives among us. He lets us write about him. He lets broken Midwestern dudes like me preach about his word. And I don't say every single thing from this pulpit with sheer perfection and correctness. You know that. You guys need to help me and I help you. But we learn together to trust Jesus more than our own lists of beliefs. Everyone sees the Bible through their own upbringing and their own experience. Yes, God has an objective truth, but all truth is God's truth, is it not? And even though he has an objective truth, you and I are not objective. Take a city Portland, a Portland map right now. 
I could put a map of Portland up on the screen and say, okay, take a red pen and draw the best, most efficient route to the Lloyd Center from here. Now, you, you don't get the, the license to make Burnside into Gleason. It's not subjective. You can't make the map however you want to make it. And yet you and I all know there'd be a thousand, well, there's not a thousand people here. However many people are here, there'd probably be that many different red lines through the city. We interpret even the word efficient differently. I thought you meant gas mileage. I thought you meant electricity. I thought you meant time. Some of us have to ride freeways during the morning, and so we've been conditioned to just never go on them. <laughs> Others of us don't have to ride. So you see what I mean? We come to the table with lots of different interpretations about the Bible, and we work together to pursue Jesus rather than fight with one another over who's correct. We hold fast often to our own certainty, and when we do, church becomes a very risky place to be honest. Church becomes a place where you can't talk about politics or religion, which is odd. Or you can do politics if you want still. Think about it. Just listen to your own conversations today and elsewhere. We often will not talk about religion because we don't want to have a fight and we don't want to lose our friends because we've been made to hold our beliefs in a certain way. I think some of you might be squirming a little bit right now, and that's okay. The shift from certainty to uncertainty and trust is not a comfortable one. But I want to be very clear here. I am, I am not saying that holding to a certain belief is a bad thing. Not at all. Certainty is a great blessing when you have it. What I'm suggesting is that most of us do not live in a place of rock-solid, 100% certainty on everything. And those of you who, like me, are not 100% certain on every single thing, I want you to know that that's okay. That you can wrestle and dialogue with God the same way that we see through both Testaments in the Bible, men and women doing. Your doubts, your questions do not mean you don't have faith. In fact, they may just mean you have a faith that's rapidly maturing. Sometimes those questions we fear so much keep us in a state of immature faith because we don't, we don't chase them down. What I'm saying is this. The deeper problem that I'm trying to tackle this morning is that we have this unspoken need for our thinking about God to be correct before we can have a joyful, meaningful healing faith and that's what I want to that's what I want to eradicate I think that's what the advent of Jesus eradicates he says certainty is very different than trust trust in me not in what you think about me as the divine becomes human God is not fitting into the correct order of things he's doing something very different this Jesus we so love and admire, his entire ministry did the same thing, didn't it? It destabilized those correctness beliefs. It flipped things over. It's just how he was. He's coming to us not to pat us on the back and say, good, you got it just right. He's saying, hey, you've got some stuff really, really right. And you've got a bunch of stuff that's not right. So I invited you to come into a community of loving fellowship where you guys are all going to pursue me in humility. Because there's never been any generation, however great it was, there's never been any era or any church that got God right, ever. And we're no exception. But we're going to keep trusting in him and learning from him and seeking him together. Faith is allegiance to Christ. Certainty is trust in yourself. Proverbs 3, 5, which I put on your bulletin today. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not rely on what you understand. Pastor Danny said to me earlier this week, this is really good. He says, ships are a lot safer in the harbor. 
but ships were not made for the harbor. The opposite of faith is not doubt. The opposite of faith is certainty. So let's wrestle with our doubts and our questions as a community who trusts Jesus. Let's wrestle together and love one another. Even when we come to the table with really shocking questions. You're going to sit in Bible studies. You're going to be teaching children's. I hope every adult in here gets involved with our children's ministry. And as you are, you'll be teaching children. You'll be in groups. And little kids will ask you crazy questions. And you'll have this urge to shut them down. And say, no, 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 that's wrong. Here's what's right. Let's not do that. Let's say, interesting question. Why are you thinking that? Teach them, praise them, love them for doubting and asking questions, but always taking them to that place of trusting in Jesus. Let's give our allegiance to Jesus and become people who never think too highly about our own correctness. We trust Jesus as correct. Pray with me. Jesus, this world that we were born into is very chaotic and painful. There have been these certain things we grab onto that seem to help. Sometimes they're medications. Sometimes they're patterns of behavior, whatever. You know what we do to try to be comfortable. But one of the things, Jesus, that we confess to you this morning is that we have, we have grown into a, a people and a nation and a world that is very impressed with our own ability to think. We're really stoked about our correctness and it makes us feel good, even to the point where we're not interested in your Bible. Because when we read your Bible, it seems to always be showing us that we're wrong about lots of stuff. <laughs> I pray that through your spirit, you would help this community be confident in you to know that the day we were saved was the day that you rose from the dead not something that we figured out and got correct on all by our lonesome selves, but Jesus, you broke into our life. You became flesh. You broke the mold. You did everything you weren't supposed to do. And you did so because you love us. And I feel like you've done it because you wanted to teach us something new. And it feels like the Bible suggests that you will be continuing to teach us new things for a very long time. So help us become a people that is okay with that. Help us become a people who can let down our guard and learn to love obeying you and following you rather than finding our security in the way that we think. Help us to be totally trusting. And so with that, I declare on behalf of all of the men and women and children in this room who believe in you, Jesus, we love you and we trust you. Amen.